today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. I was looking at some uh, information this week, and I ran across an old sermon uh, by Dr. Russell Moore. Uh, he wrote back in 2009, I believe, and, the t- and Russell Moore is president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, and Sanctity of Life falls under his purview in Southern Baptist to promote it and do things that help protect that in, in our nation, uh, keep it in front of our churches. And the sermon title was, Why I Hate Sanctity of Life Sunday. And I thought, what? That just doesn't sound right uh, coming from, from his position. So I clicked on it, opened it up, and he said, let me tell you why I hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. He said, I hate that we live in a world where I have to remind people that it's not right for parents to take the life of their unborn child. He said, I, I hate living in a world where I have to remind fathers not to abandon their children. He said, I hate living in a world where I have to remind people to treat one another as if others were also created in the image of God. And he said, I hate having to tell people, even believers, that they need to treat their body as if it was created in the image of God because it is. And they should know that. And then I understood completely what he's saying. I am so thankful for a church that upholds that believes in the sanctity of human life one of our core values is the sanctity of human life i'm thankful for those of you that partner in a myriad of ministries that support that whether it's foster care uh serving at the the boys lodge as a volunteer whispering hope the crisis pregnancy center uh women's center of forsyth county all of those things that that you do those who have adopted children themselves i am so thankful Uh, for that kind of church and let's remember uh, this Sunday and all those that need to hear that word from God that all life is created in the image of the father and we're going to talk about the father this morning and lift up our partners you're going to be hearing more about one of our partners whispering hope during the offertory moment but pray with me this morning father we stand in amazement that you thought enough of us to create us in nothing less than your image. And Father, we're thankful for your word that teaches us that all life is sacred. We're thankful for your son, our Savior, who died for all the world, all those who would call on his name, even while we were still sinners. And so, Father, I pray that as a church, you will help us keep Uh, the needs of the unborn, the needs of the fatherless and the motherless, the needs uh, of those who are hurting creatures created in your image in front of, of our own eyes, in front of our own hands, so that we can reach out and serve in the ways you've called us to love them, encourage them, support them, and Father, share truth with them in grace and in love. Father, for parents... We're bringing a child in the world. We pray that you will watch over them and guard them and help them prepare to be godly parents. For, for those who have sinned, for those who have not taken the sanctity of life seriously and, and made serious, grave mistakes, Father, 
We are thankful that you are the God of grace and mercy and a God of forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit would convict their life and bring them to you in in repentance and confession because we trust, God, that you are a God of forgiveness. Father, for our partners, all those who minister to serve in this area of our culture, we pray that we'll be a church that generously resources them, that we'll be a church that volunteers and walks hand in hand with them, that we'll be a church that upholds life, all life, in your name. We thank you, Father, for your grace, which gives us the strength to do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we begin a, a new study, and, and I ask some people to finish the sentence, God is, and when you ask people to finish that sentence, you get a lot of different answers. Matt Kaysan videoed some children for me this week, and, and they said, God is, one of them did, God is powerful. Several said, God is love. One said, God is good to me. One said, God is extraordinary. Another one said, God is truthful. Well, I rejoiced in that. Sounds like those group of kids are reading the Bible and coming to church and they're hearing a good message about God. But you know, if you leave the church and you ask the same question, you're going to get some different answers. You're going to get God is dead or God is a a myth, a figment of your imagination or God is vengeful or God is many. Believing in many gods and you know even if you limit your question to believers who are or say they are believers who are both in the church and out of the church and to be honest with you I I think it's a stretch to call yourself a believer yet forsake the church Jesus bride I mean when you look at an understanding of the church and you say I have no part of it just think about how you are talking to God the Son. And so, but those who would call themselves believers inside and outside the church, some believe in, a, in, you get many different answers from them as well. And of course, this does reflect positively the fact that God cannot be defined by a simple fill in the blank sentence, can he? I mean, every one of those children were struggling to come up with one or two words because so many words came to their mind. And it is a good thing that God can't be defined by one of our sentences as cleverly as we might write it because we need a God who is much bigger than we can define in one sentence. And the reason why I want us to study this doctrine of God is that what you believe about God, what you think about God, what you know about God will affect three things. It will affect how you relate to God. It will affect how you relate to other people. And it will affect what you think about your own body as well. For instance, if you believe that God is love, you have a foundation that will help you love others. The Bible says we love because God first loved us. We understand the ability to love comes from God himself. And the example of loving comes from God himself. If you believe God is a by-the-book kind of God, then you'll probably try to hold everyone around you by the book. Now, God is love, 
But love is not just this warm, fuzzy feeling, and God is by the book, if you define that by always truthful. He is always truthful. But if you leave out grace and mercy when you look at him, define him as a by-the-book kind of God, then your definition will drive you to mercilessly hold yourself and others accountable to, to a degree that you're not able to do. Now, I'm not saying that we should relax what our standards are and do less than what God has called us. But we will beat ourselves up over the head if we don't understand the gospel that Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for your sin and mine, for all of us have sinned. And because of that gospel, we have forgiveness, not because of anything that we have ever done. We can't earn it. We can't do enough good from here to the end to, to take care of the bad that all of us know that we have already done. And so this by-the-book God is also a God of grace. Not to say we can just go out there and live in our sin any way we want to, but we need to turn to the gospel on a daily basis and thank God for His love and His grace. It matters what you believe about God. It matters what you think about God. It matters what you know about God. So for the next eight weeks, we're going to answer that question, God is and apply it to our lives so, number one, we can relate to God in a healthy way. Two, so that we can relate to each other better than we relate. And number three, so we can relate to our circumstances and the challenges of life that each one of us experience. So this morning, I want us to look at God as Father. God is Father. Now, there are some foundational principles I want to lay down, and we're going to fly through these this morning. I mean, if you saw the number of slides we've got, some of them I'm just going to read and, and move on, but they're a reference for you as we build on this foundation in the weeks ahead. Uh, but the, it, it is a foundation that I, I want all of us to understand as much as we can. For instance, I want you to understand about the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't pretend that we will all understand it perfectly at the end of this message, or quite frankly, if I preached on the Trinity all year long, there'll still be some things I don't understand. And, and do you not want a God that you can't completely understand? If you understood all the depth and all the breadth, all the wisdom, all the mysteries of God, that would make you equal to God. And make you God. And we all know quite clearly by our own lives that we're not. And so do we want to rely on, do we want a God that is bigger than we can articulate and understand? Now this does not mean be lazy about your understanding and your study to get to know no, more and more about God because as I, I have said, it matters. What you believe about God, what you know about God, what you think about God will affect how you pray to Him, how you follow Him, how you trust Him, how you obey Him. It will affect how you treat your, your spouse, your children, your friends, your co-workers. And it will, it will help you navigate all of the circumstances of life. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is this, that there is one God in three. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's not three different gods, it's one God. 
He shows himself to us in those three unique ways. And I, I just want to share with you from the Old Testament, the very first book of the Bible in the very first chapter and the very first verse is where we get a hint. We get a hint of the Trinity. Uh, even though you won't find the word Trinity in Scripture. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now that is an interesting sentence in Hebrew because the word God is the Hebrew word Elohim and it's plural. The word created, the verb, is singular. Even in the very first verse of the Bible, God is trying to tell us that God is bigger than we can understand. That is one way Hebrews, Hebrew culture would use a plural, not to indicate more than one, but to indicate something greater than our language allows us to say in a singular person. So the plural Elohim, it also is telling us that in the beginning, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed in that very same chapter, moving down to verse 26, it said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. You see the rest of the verse there, but I just want to major on that part. Let us, plural, make man in our, more than one, image after our likeness. Again, God tipping his hat towards the understanding that he is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Spirit. We're going to come back to the doctrine of the Trinity in just a minute, but let me lay down seven truths, seven foundational principles that we need to build all of our understanding, no matter how we complete that sentence. If we're talking about God is Father, we can build it on these statements. If we're talking about God is Spirit, and we can, we can build it on these statements. God is Son, and we will. We'll build it on these statements. God is all-knowing. God is immutable. All the things that we're going to talk about we need to build on these statements. First of all, there is only one God. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not God's. We've, we've already gone over that. It is the plural word. It is the singular verb. There is one God. He created it. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, is, the Lord is one. It's not a plurality of gods. And in Isaiah 44, verse 6, God's word says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Principle number one, there is only one God. Principle number two, the Father is God. John 6, 27 reads, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. God is Father. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6 reads, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So you see both Father and Son there, both being talked about in the very same way. But I bring this up on this part just to nail down the fact that the Father is God. Third principle, the Son is God. John 1 verse 18 reads, No one 
has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Who's at the Father's side? Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus is God. The Son is God. Look at chapter 5, verse 18 in the Gospel of John. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Thought there, if God has a Son... There, there, he's divine as well. The Son is God. Look at chapter 10 in the Gospel of John, verses 30 through 33. I and the Father are one. This is Jesus speaking. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, It is not good. It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God those three passages all in the book of John tell us that the son is God even John 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God all of chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the son and he is God and then number four the Holy Spirit is God. Look with me at Matthew chapter 3 verse 16 and when, when Jesus, you saw three baptized this morning, Jesus was baptized just as they were baptized and it says immediately he went up from the water and behold the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The Holy Spirit, it's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is God. We're going to talk about that verse in a little bit later as it relates to the whole Trinity. But then look at uh, uh, Matthew chapter 28 verse 19. I preached from this text last week and in that it is the command for us to go teaching others, making disciples and teaching them to observe everything God has commanded and then we're to do what? We are to baptize them and how do we baptize them? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And you heard each of our pastors this morning baptizing in that Trinitarian formula. The Holy Spirit is God. The fifth principle is this. The Father is not the Son. They're one, but they are unique, is what I'm trying to say. John chapter 6, verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. The Father is not the Son. They're, they're distinct entities. Jesus, we'll look at chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Again, you see that separation. Do you already see how hard this is to articulate? Do you track with me on that? And every time I preach on this doctrine and, and try to, uh, to the grasp just how big our God is, I find myself just so uh, underwhelming. I am overwhelmed, but as I speak, I feel so underwhelming. God, the mystery of, who, of, of the Trinity, of who He is, is greater than we can understand. But putting all of these principles together and knowing that this is truth, 
and this is truth, and in my finite mind, I can't grasp that infinite truth. Our God is that big. The, the sixth principle is this. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. So you see the Trinity in that. The Holy Spirit comes on Mary. The power of the Most High God, the Father, is overshadowing her, and she's giving birth to the child who is the Son of God. So the Son is not the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, verse 34, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure the son is not the holy spirit and finally principle number seven the father is not the holy spirit matthew 3 16 and 17 we've already talked about this but let's read it again with this in mind the father is not the holy spirit they're distinct and when jesus was baptized immediately went up from the water and behold the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God, physically saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove, rested on him. And he heard a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2 verse 18 reads, For through him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. Son is not the Holy Spirit. Father is not the Holy Spirit. And there is only one God. That is a mystery that we will grow to love more and more as we read about it and meditate on it and allow it to affect how we relate to God but it is a mystery that we will never completely on this earth be able to articulate as clearly as any of us would like to. Now back to the doctrine of the Trinity. We began in the very first chapter of the very first book, in the very first verse of the Old Testament, but that doctrine is clearly seen in the New Testament as well. In two verses that we've already read this morning, Matthew chapter 3, 16 and 17, the baptism of Jesus, where the formula there as John is baptizing him is that Jesus was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then as you saw and witnessed this morning, earlier in the service, and as you see, uh, Jesus calls us to go and disciple, make disciples, teaching them all that he's taught us and to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is a foundation. Hang on to those scripture verses. Uh, just go to them and, and read them, take them in, affirming all of those truths even where you cannot completely understand it. Now, on top of that, I want us to build out the rest of this series. Today, we're going to look at God is Father. When the disciples saw Jesus pray, it was nothing that they had seen like it any time. They were amazed at the authenticity of his conversation with the Father. They were amazed at his honesty and transparency. They were amazed 
at his desire and love to speak to the Father. It's not saying that the disciples weren't authentic as much as they could be when they prayed. It wasn't that the disciples did not love God, but when they saw Jesus pray, it was just at a different level, and they wanted that kind of relationship with the Father, and they said, teach us, teach us how to pray. And, and we're not going to go over the whole prayer. I just want us to look at that first phrase, our Father in the King James, who art in heaven, our Father in heaven, our heavenly fathers, three words that we can camp out on this morning. First of all, he is our father. That's yours and mine. And believers in the church down the street and believers in the church uh, on the other side of the globe. He is our father. Isaiah 44 verse 6 reads, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. So that clearly tells us he is the God of Israel, right? But is he more than that? Look at chapter 45, same book of the Bible, Isaiah, verses 5 through 7. I am the Lord. And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So it's obvious Israel is his chosen people, that he's going to reveal himself to them and talk to them. He is God. But very clearly he says, from the rising of the sun, as far west as you go, all are creatures of God, created in his image. He is God of all. He is our Father. And, and then look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning covenant of our fathers? A testament to God being the Father and the God of all. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, we've read several times already, but let's look at it again. Yet for us there is one God, us, plural, one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist all creatures are created all men and women in his image not just in in Israel and not just in our country but all people he is our father I remember as a child sharing a room with my younger brother Saturday's chore day right and so if it hadn't already been done through the week because we were told we knew it was going to happen on Saturday, clean up your room. My brother was a couple of years younger than me, and rightfully so at that time, a couple of years less mature than me. So I'd rush to the room, and I would clean up my half of the room. And I'd go out, and I'd say, Dad, my room's clean. And invariably, I'd get this answer, where's your brother? Well, you know, then I was out of pride say, well, he's still back in the room cleaning up his side. Let dad know I did a good job and I did it fast and my brother's not doing such a good job and he's being slow about it. And dad would say, the two of you haven't cleaned up your room. You go back and you clean up your room. Dad was teaching me that he was father to two and then eventually there would be three sons. But he was also pointing me to understand that God is our Father. 
And we are in this together. And when you understand that, when you know that about God, will it not affect the way you pray? Ask yourself this. Have I ever prayed a prayer that if God answered it, would have been harmful to someone else? It was a selfish prayer. You wanted something. You wanted it done your way, all right? I mean, maybe you were a, had a picnic on Saturday. You wanted it to rain. There's a farmer next door. He wanted it to be able to harvest his crops. God answers your prayer and hurts the farmer. God answers the farmer and hurts you. Don't you see that we're here together? Can we not trust the sovereign God to take care of all of us because he is all of our fathers? And so knowing that God is our Father should affect the way that we pray. Second thing I see in this passage is that He is Father. We've nailed that down in many verses already, but I I want you to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your Father, that's God, who is in heaven, give good things to those who? Who asked him? Again, my father was a very good example for me. He wasn't perfect, but he was a very good example to me. And he did things that were very loving for me and also pointed me to a heavenly father. You know, he gave me good gifts on special occasions. Christmas, my birthday, Easter. I realized he and my mom together, but my father was a part of giving those good gifts to me on special occasions occasions you know he he also gave me just because gifts don't you love just because no occasion nothing you've done deserve it's not some award or reward for something it's just you know dad says I want to give you this and out of the blue he gives you something and then dad also gave me some gifts as I would grow up and mature and learn a little bit better he was giving me gifts every single day and so many of those days I never even thought to thank him I mean, I didn't wake up in the morning and say, gee, Dad, I had a great night's sleep. Thank you for giving me that bed. I didn't buy it. I didn't move it into my bedroom. I didn't put it up. My dad did all of those things. And then, you know, I I went to the breakfast table and ate breakfast. I I went to school and had money to get lunch or took my lunch with me. Mom made from food from our budget, and I came home and had a good dinner. I mean, how many times did I say, Dad, Thank you for breakfast. Thank you for lunch. Thank you for the food that you provide every single day of my life. I didn't come home and say, gee, Dad, wow, I got a roof on my head and I've got clothes in my closet. Thank you, Dad. But every day he provided for me and he pointed to the Father. Jesus said, pray this way, give us today our daily bread. He gives us, provides for us every single day of our life life even the breath that we have the scripture testifies to the fact that he gives it he sustains it and he could take it away and then my dad gave me a future oriented gift one time more than one time but a big one was paying for my college education he said son I want to I want to do this for you and you'll reap benefits from it for for years and I have still reaping a benefit of the the season that he paid for my college education and you know God gives us that future oriented gift too he gave it to us when he gave us Jesus Christ his son who died that you and I might have forgiveness of our sin of all of our life 
reconciliation with God, to live with Him, and then heaven for all of eternity. God is our Father, yours and mine. He is Father, and then also He is our Father in heaven. I remember the day, you know, I was young enough to think that my dad could do anything. And I also remember those days when I thought my dad knew everything. And certainly as a child, I probably didn't even think about this, but um, I, I probably thought that he would live forever. He'd always be right there with me, next to me. And I grew up, and again, I've told you my father's a, a wonderful example as a Christian believer, but I grew up to learn that he could not do everything. There were some things that got broken that he couldn't fix. Uh, I got a little older, and I realized he didn't know everything. In fact, every once in a while, I knew something that he didn't know. He seemed to always know more than I knew, but I learned he didn't know it all. And then in 2002, God took him home, and I realized from that point that uh, he would not be on this earth with me forever. But our Heavenly Father is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. He has all power. He has all knowledge. And he is, out time, he is outside of time and space. So there is not a single time on the calendar or a single spot on this globe that God is not right there with me and every one of us. That is the kind of God we have. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 22 through 32, it's a long passage, but follow along. Read this with me. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. And I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown... This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of, uh, of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives us to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made one man from every nation, and he made, excuse me, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring being then from God's offspring, we ought to not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. And that's Jesus. That man is Jesus whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard, uh, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, Wow, we'll hear, we'll hear you about this again. We want to know more. You see, when you understand not only that, that God is our God, all of us, and not only is He our Father, He is our Heavenly Father. I, I preached in seminary uh, on this very passage. 
years ago in front of my peers, and I was evaluated by each one of them, and one of them wrote me on the evaluation, I didn't get anything from this message. My dad was mean, horrible, terrible person, and you related that to our God. And, you know, I was, became aware because I just grew up with a good dad that not everyone has that same experience. But yet the Scripture clearly teaches us he is a father. And if you have a father that has been horrible or is horrible still to this day, that doesn't mean that God is not that good father. The fact that you would say my father is not good indicates that you believe that he should be good. And our Heavenly Father is, an, is a perfect example for our earthly fathers. And for each of you who are here who are fathers and mothers, our, our Father is a great example of how we should act as parents to our children. But we have a good Father, a Heavenly Father who knows no limits. And when you know God can do all things, owns it all, there's nothing you can do for him. It will affect the way you pray and the way you relate to him as well, especially in your obedience. I heard a story of an owner of a company. He was going to change his employee's uh, health care benefit package, uh, but he, he was not going to do it unless everyone signed up for it. And so sent out a memo, and everyone but one, one old codger signed up for this. And, and so he sent uh, the HR, his supervisor, to him. And the supervisor explained it to him. said, you know, if you don't do this, none of us get to do it. And it's a great plan. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. They, they sent a friend. They, they thought maybe a, a really good friend could influence him and that worked there. And they sent his best friend. And he explained it to him. And he said, man, I need this. And if you don't sign up, I don't get it. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. They sent the HR director. Same thing. No, I'm not going to do it. Finally, the owner called him into his office and said, I'm the owner. I built this company. I started this company. You're employed because of this company. I could stop this company at any time. I could stop your employment at any time. This is a benefit package I want for everyone, but everyone must participate. Here's the paper. Will you sign it? And the guy signed it without hesitation. And the owner looked, took the paper back and said, that was easy. Why did you sign it so quickly? He said, because now I understand who's asking me. The one who can take the job from me. The one who is sovereign authority in this particular area of my life. You and I need to see our God, our Father, as a sovereign Lord of the universe. And it will affect how we relate to Him, how we treat others, and how we handle the circumstances God brings into our life. Three takeaways. When we see God as Father, we're moved to obey Him. When we see God as Father, we are moved to treat others as if they were created in the image of God, because they are. And when we see God as Father, we're moved to trust His care in every situation.